If there's one phrase that sums up the physical therapy profession, that phrase would be, it depends. Welcome to the Tales from the Plant podcast, where we will explore the notorious it depends phrase through interesting and in-depth interviews with physical therapists from all types of practice. Join us for inspiration, laughs, and tips and tricks in starting and improving your clinical practice. Welcome Welcome to to Tales Tales from from the Plant podcast. Drum roll, please, ladies and gentlemen. Today we have the one, the only, the fantastic Amanda Daly on the podcast. Amanda, say hi to everybody. Hi, everyone. So Amanda um, has been both Ben and I's CI at one point, so we are super pumped to have her on today. Um, So without further ado, Amanda, why don't you just start kind of telling everybody a little bit about yourself? All right, thank you. So I also went to Gannon. I graduated in 2012 from PT school. Um, I did the three plus three program. So I did my undergrad at Gannon as well and majored in sport and exercise science. And I currently work in an outpatient facility in Erie. I do all outpatient neuro and vestibular physical therapy. Um, And I've been in my current position for about five years. I have some experience in inpatient rehab and acute care as well. So we'll jump right into the hard-hitting questions. But first, let's start off a little lighthearted. Amanda, you've had both David and Ben as students. Tell me, why are all the reasons that David is such a better student than Ben? (laughs) You guys have one wild guess as to who wrote these questions, right? (laughs) So uh, I'm not going to pick favorites, but I, uh, as I told one of your professors, um, I won the student lottery in having both of you guys. You guys are awesome. And I couldn't have asked for better students. and I've been tremendously spoiled for the past few months. So kudos to you guys. Well, thank you. And that's a great way to answer the question. I know that I'm the better student, but we'll just leave it at that. So anyways, Amanda, what settings did you do rotations in when you were in PT school before you kind of decided to do the neural outpatient stuff? Uh, so, so yeah, none of the settings that I work in, actually, um, I did an outpatient orthopedic clinical as my first rotation at Gannon. And then I did a skilled nursing facility, which was a little bit inpatient rehab, but it was a skilled nursing facility. So they were pretty low level patients. Um, And then I did acute care um, at UPMC Northwest, which is a pretty small hospital. So it was a pretty um, just general acute care. And then my last rotation was in pediatrics with an IU six. um, And it was mostly preschool and My CIA and I traveled from school to school. Um, Most of the kids were in preschool. Some of them were in high school and some of like the life skills and special needs classes, but it was all pediatrics. That's a challenging last rotation for sure. So where along the lines then, like, did you decide that you had an interest in neuro? Because we've heard from a lot of people on the podcast, like they're usually all ortho or something like that going through PT school. Like what kind of made you interested in the field you're in now? So I was always interested in neuro. Um, I always wanted to do going through PT school, either neuro or pediatrics. Um, My pediatrics rotation definitely solidified that I didn't want to spend all of my time in pediatrics. Um, I do enjoy the occasional kid that comes through the clinic um, that I get to treat and have fun with, but um, that clinical kind of helped steer me in in the direction that I am kind of ruling out 
the other favorite of mine. Um, but I just, I love the neuro population. I, my first job was in acute care and I was there about six months and started talking to my boss about ways to get some experience in inpatient rehab. And I always wanted to, you know, specialize in something and not just be a generalist clinician. Um, but I love this population and its uniqueness and all my patients are a little bit different. So that's fun. So forgive me, I can't remember the exact time on your career. You were in Pittsburgh for inpatient, right? Yeah. So I, um, when I graduated, my first job was in Pittsburgh at Shadyside Hospital. And I worked there for just about exactly a year. Um, during that time, I had started to do some per diem work at Mercy Hospital in their uh, inpatient rehab units. So when a spot opened there, I transferred. And then I did inpatient, primarily stroke rehab. Um, was kind of my home base, but we would float around a little bit. So I spent some time there in acute care and in their traumatic brain injury unit and their spinal cord injury unit um, as well. And then I moved to Erie in 2015 and I worked at Hammett for a couple of years. Um, they had an in-house position open, so it was kind of an easy transfer from my old job to, to Hammett. And then um, when I was presented with a outpatient opportunity to kind of you know, um, join the outpatient neuro program and grow that, I jumped on it and haven't looked back. That's awesome. So it's interesting that you mentioned that because like the next question that I had for you, when people think of earning a specialty in something, whether it's OCS, NCS, sports, anything, usually their mind goes like right to a residency. I know from a student perspective, that's usually like where it trails to, but you didn't do a residency, correct? Correct. So was like, what are the pros and cons you think of doing a residency versus kind of going your path where you just did your own studying and found the clinic hours that you needed to, to with the patient populations? So when I graduated, residencies weren't as popular as they are now. So not very many people that I knew were looking into residencies or pursuing residencies. Um, and I was kind of encouraged to test out the waters a little bit and make sure I wanted a certain specialty and then maybe go back to it later. Um, but it's really hard, I think, once you start working to go back to that academic role and, um, you know, you kind of get in the real world and you get a real paycheck and you don't have to study and it's really nice. Um, so I was really, really fortunate in my job at Mercy Hospital that I spent a lot of time in the rotations that their neurologic residents do. So the PIT residents will rotate through all of the units at Mercy Hospital, their um, inpatient trauma unit, um, in acute care, uh, TBI, stroke, um, and spinal cord injury. So I had some amazing mentors and I was lucky enough to work with some of the residents. A um, couple of the girls gave me some study materials and I was able to kind of utilize not only the hours of experience that I spent there, but also, you know, my resources and kind of networking to kind of pull together what I needed. It's hard to study after you work all day, but it's definitely doable. How, how many hours was it that you needed with different patient um, like diagnoses or presentations? So you have to have, um, for the neuro specialty, it's 2,000 hours of clinical practice in the neuro specialty area, um, which sounds kind of daunting, but it kind of adds up to about two years of full-time work. 
Um, and they really look at it just as a formula. So I think I had figured out that I spent about 80% of my working hours doing patient care. And then about 80% of my patients when I worked in rehab were um, individuals that had some type of neurological diagnosis. So then you kind of just input that formula when you apply for the exam. Um, and you don't have to log like every minute that you ever spent. Um, but it takes about a, about two years or so to accumulate that much time if you're essentially full-time in that practice area. Good to know. I actually didn't realize that. For some reason, I thought it would be like an ongoing form of like the patients you've seen. I guess that's just probably because my experience in clinic right now where I keep an ongoing form of all the patients I see. <laughs> but yeah. um, no, wow. Okay, that's cool. So then you said that the neuro exam was what, seven hours, right? Mm -hmm. It's a beast. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, because that's something that I'm interested in pursuing too, possibly one day. I don't know. I'm so torn, like NCS, OCS. I guess it kind of just boils down to like whatever I feel like would be best for the company and myself mutually. Just depends. Yeah. I think the beauty of specializing is it's not um, it's not a restrictive process. So I have my neurospecialty. I could treat orthopedic patients if I, you know, wanted to. Um, and you know, you can get more than one specialty. You don't have to, you're not locked into one area. Um, and I think there's an underestimated value in having ortho and neuro experience. There's a huge need for it. I lean heavily on my orthopedic colleagues and, and, you know, sometimes wish I had some of their knowledge and definitely try to, to do better in that area. So it's not bad to like both. Now, was it hard for you to transition back to kind of almost a school mode, you know, relearning all of this or learning all of this new neuro content beyond what you learned in PT school to study for this major exam? So it is hard and it takes up, takes up a lot of your spare time and definitely some sacrifices and, you know, fun things and weekends and things like that. But um I was able to kind of organize it into sections. They do give you kind of a study guide of, um, you know, content areas on the exam. So I knew that I needed to know things about spinal cord injury and brain injury and vestibular, um, Parkinson's, any neurological diagnosis you can think of, but they kind of lay that out for you. Um, and someone had kind of advised me that they studied for, you know, maybe six months or so prior to the exam. Um, so I would do like a topic a week and, you know, just kind of laid out a timeline so that I kept myself um, on track. Um, most of the content areas I really only studied once and then kind of kept like a list of things to circle back to, um, you know, and then kind of saved some of the things that were a little more important to memorize, outcome measures and anatomy and things like that for closer to the end. I gave myself like a little review period, but, um, I think just being organized is the most important thing. And there are a ton of resources. The more time that goes by, the more study resources are available. And I think the more the process becomes friendly to people that don't do a residency. Um, hey guys, Ben here, Amanda's humble student. So just whatever Dave has to say, just take it with a grain of salt. It helps him sleep at night. It's okay. We'll get through it together. So we talked a lot about residencies so far. So Amanda, why don't you talk a little bit about like 
maybe how getting your NCS has changed the trajectory of your career, maybe when it comes to just how it's advanced it and maybe your clinical knowledge and things of that nature. Sure. Um, when I was offered the outpatient position that I have, I had no outpatient experience, um, but I had my NCS. So I attribute that um, certification to really the opportunity for the job that I have had, um, because I certainly, you know, needed uh, brought up to speed with, you know, some documentation and billing and some, you know, intricate things of outpatient that we don't do so much in inpatient. Um, and I think it just gives us a better way of looking at things. You know, um, I stay pretty connected to the uh, Neuro um, Academy resources. I think it gives us a better foundation for evidence-based practice um, and just makes me critically think more about the patients that I see and the way that I approach that um, more than I ever did before. I think, I think it raises the bar for our clinical practice. Yeah, I like that. It kind of puts some more tools in the toolbox, right? <laughs> and like thinking of that, I think back to my rotation with you and just how like how much diversity was in a single day. Like even though we're in a neuro clinic, it's not like you're just seeing people that were post-stroke all day. So to give people maybe a sense of kind of how varied the patient population can be in a day, why don't you give like a typical day? where you might see like a lot of different patients. Why don't you just give us a little example? Um, so I see patients one-on-one, -on -one, which is a, uh, a treat, I think, in today's PT world. Um, but I have, you know, currently just kind of thinking about, you know, my day today or Dave and I stay tomorrow. We have a couple of individuals on caseload with spinal cord injury. Um, we have a, a young man with a pretty severe traumatic brain injury. Um, I see a handful of concussion patients, usually a couple at least every day. Um, I have some patients that are just general vestibular, so maybe they were referred from their PCP or their ear, nose, and throat doctor uh, for just generalized dizziness. And sometimes, um, you know, we have the have the responsibility of kind of figuring out why people are dizzy. Um, so I have quite a few of those patients. Um, I get a lot of elderly individuals who maybe have balance problems. Um, maybe they don't have a diagnosis. Um, with COVID, I saw a lot of people that were just kind of deconditioned. They sat in their houses too much. Um, they weren't active. They got kind of wobbly. And so just general balance. Uh, amputees fall under my specialty. I don't get too many of those, but um, it's definitely included. Uh, I don't know, Dave, can you think of anybody else or Ben? I think that's a pretty, pretty comprehensive list, but it's a hodgepodge. We kind of have a joke in our clinic that if it's like a unique patient or they have some special needs, they probably go on my schedule. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like, I, I think you kind of touched on it a lot. Like one of the things I thought was you can go from somebody that has like very severe impairments, you know, if you're seeing somebody that's maybe post-stroke and they've been kind of having, you know, they're very hemiparetic or, you know, low level community ambulators, I guess would be like a good term for it, all the way up to seeing kind of higher level athletes, collegiate athletes in a day. So you really kind of had to be flexible with how you can roll with the punches, so to say. So I think that was a really good experience for both Dave and I. But how about we dig a little bit? Now, one of the things we loved talking about, Amanda, was the high intensity gait training with our stroke patients. So why don't you give 
someone that might not have, you know, as much experience in that a sense of what high intensity gait training looks like? Sure. So um, high intensity gait training kind of stemmed from the new locomotor clinical practice guideline that was published by the American Academy of NeuroPT a couple years ago. So they kind of looked at all of these different interventions that we might do for neurological um, impairments and kind of what had the best evidence and what got the best results. Um, so high intensity gait training can be utilized for anybody with a neurological problem. Um, it's a little more um, maybe popular and published in the stroke population. Um, but it is basically targeting, um, targeting the biomechanical subcomponents of gait, we call it. So instead of thinking about the, you know, every little detail of gait training um, that we learned in PT school and breaking down into all of those, um, kinematics, we just focus on four different things. So we look at lateral stability, which is basically balance, um, limb advancement, which is just that ability to propel your leg forward. Um, and then we look at uh, stance control, which is just prevention of buckling. So if you think of somebody who is hemiparetic, um, you know, their knee buckling when they're weight bearing. Um, and then we look at propulsion, which is basically just our ability moving forward. Like walking is kind of like an ongoing prevention from falling. It's just that forward momentum. So we use those four biomechanical subcomponents. Um, we analyze the person's gait to decide which of those components are um, necessary to work on. And then we kind of come up with, you know, what is the most important one to focus on. Um, and a lot of times, more often than not, um, all of them can be addressed in some way. And sometimes there's an order of, you know, maybe we got to prevent the person from buckling so they can just stand up and then maybe we want to, you know, work on walking faster. So sometimes we choose them in kind of a sequential way. Um, but the intensity part comes in where we use heart rate and RPE to determine how hard the patient is working. Um, so for the most part, we use a range of like 75 to 85% of the individual's heart rate maximum. And we adjust that if they're on beta blockers, you know, and sometimes the Borg scale is more uh, accurate than, um, than heart rate. Um, but it's basically getting someone to walk, to improve their walking um, absolutely as much as they can in the time that they have at the highest level intensity that we can. Um, and the evidence behind that is that um, people need more repetition and they need more stepping. And if we do more repetition at a more intense level, people will get better faster and have better long-term outcomes than if we focus on, you know, hip flexion, knee extension, heel strike, and all of those individual things. Um, and it's really kind of fundamentally comes from the... Um, there's a paper on kind of the neuroplasticity of neurorecovery. And it's basically, you know, those components, intensity and time and duration and things like that, that, that is where kind of where all of that research comes from. So. And like whoever is listening to this podcast that is interested in the neuro population, I would highly recommend clipping that segment out because it is a fantastic way to to look at treating patients with strokes or different types of injuries i mean it's made it something that was intimidating and super complex much more attainable to me to do on, on, a, on a 
daily basis with Amanda's help. And it makes it creative too. Like Amanda, tell them like all the different ways that you come up with weight fest, obstacles, stairs, you name it. I mean, can you kind of go into like an example of how we would address each component? Mm-hmm. Sure. So um, I think kind of what I have learned more than anything is that our patients are tougher than we think. And we can push somebody a lot harder than we think. And as physical therapists, I think sometimes we have to remember that, you know, maybe our you know, maybe our patient did have a stroke, maybe they have a cardiac history, but we can safely exert them at a high level. Um, And we can be super creative in doing that. Um, And we don't have to think of a hundred different exercises to make them successful. We can think of a few really good ones and then um, tweak those in a few different ways. So a couple examples, uh, some of my favorites. Um, So if someone has like a buckling knee, if they have a stance control problem, would be the biomechanical subcomponent. Um, If we weight that person down, then they have to do more intense knee extension to keep themselves upright. Um, So my new toy in our office is that I just got a weighted vest and the weights in it are removable. Um, So it goes up to 60 pounds, which sounds like a lot, but um, we can vary it based upon the patient and based upon their needs. So putting a weighted vest on, having the patient walk around the clinic, step over obstacles, go up and down the stairs, um, work on reciprocal stair negotiation as soon as possible, minimize the hand railing as much as possible and really make them use their legs. Um, Can use a lot of TheraBands in a lot of different ways. If someone's having a hard time walking at a good speed, so if they're just really slow and they don't move well and it's more of a propulsion issue, Um, then we can kind of use a treadmill speed to speed them up or use a TheraBand to either pull them from behind or have them walk again. Uh, Ben and Dave have both had patients pull them around the office on a stool. So we can kind of make it fun for patients and for us Um, to put the TheraBand just around their leg if we need to advance it. I use a lot of ankle weights, use a lot of obstacles. Um, I'm fortunate to be uh, next door to the YMCA. So we use the stairwell a lot to do, you know, big stairs and not just our little therapy stairs that we have in the gym. Um, But those are some examples. It's kind of a, the sky is the limit sort of intervention for sure. Absolutely. And speaking of, oh, I'm sorry, Liz. I thought, eh, whatever, we'll just go with it. So speaking of um, intensity, Famously, Ben is going to be running a marathon next month for which he has little preparation. So, so Amanda, you're an avid runner. You've done marathons. What advice do you have for Ben as he has never run a marathon in his life, never run, what, above 13 miles in his life? And do you think he's going to make it through without dying? So I think he'll make it. I, um, I love the Pittsburgh Marathon. It's one of my favorites. I think it will get real for you when you make the right turn at the end of the Birmingham Bridge. It's where the half and the full split. Um, And that's kind of like the moment when you realize that you're in it for the whole thing and you really wish you would have turned left and you're almost to the finish line. Um, But stay hydrated. Make sure you fuel with something. Wear, uh, test out your clothes. Don't wear new clothes. (laughs) We got this. I got money on it. Ryan Brown is going to burn you in the race dude he's well, yeah gonna, he's gonna burn me this is all ryan's fault so if i don't make it or you know i have to be wheeled off in a transport chair the next day it's all ryan brown's fault so he's <laughs> convinced me to do it so if you're listening 
I did 18 this weekend though, and I'm feeling pretty good. So that's good. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Under five hours is the goal. So 10 minute miles, we're good. We're all good. You'll be fine. (laughs) Anyways, before David interrupted, I was going to mention that um, just from our schooling, I found it really cool how creative you can be um, with neuro. I think it's like peds almost where you have to really adapt it to the patient and get them interested. Um, But I kind of wanted to ask you, you've worked now both in inpatient and outpatient with neuropopulations. Is your approach to treatment similar in both settings or how does it differ, what do you think? I think it's definitely similar. Um, So we have kind of a committee of high intensity gay training trained therapists in our um, CRS Uh, company. And a lot of the therapists are inpatient rehab therapists. And then there's some of us who do outpatient. We use a lot of the same treatment interventions. I think the difference in inpatient rehab is you're seeing the patients in more of an acute state. So um, you're seeing them, you know, potentially with IVs or feeding tubes or, you know, more behavioral issues or more cognitive issues, um, potentially orthostatic blood pressure issues. Um, and, you know, higher level, maybe safety issues too. So the inpatient therapists use a lot of body weight support training, um, both over ground and on the treadmill. Um, but I think the acuity is the biggest thing. I think we're still approaching it at, you know, the same heart rate range intensities and the same approach to treating all of the biomechanical subcomponents. I think the interventions are very similar. It's just a little bit of a different place in the patient's recovery time. Yeah, and I, how do you also, like, whether you were inpatient or even in the outpatient setting, you know, a lot of, like you said, a lot of neuro um, patients come with some behavioral or cognitive deficits. How do you kind of manage that in your day? And, you know, I've had some interesting encounters with patients in my acute care rotation with neuro impairments and how do you make the most of your either evaluation or treatment when you see those kind of patients? So I think the most important thing is that we see our patients one-on-one. So it's really necessary for this population. It's not the same as you know having two patients who had a knee replacement and one's on heat and one's on the bike and they're managing themselves. Um, a lot of my neuro patients require more one-on-one care. They require more you know, um, patients and instructions, and there's more safety considerations. Um, it's harder to get documentation done because you're constantly, you know, hands-on with the patient, usually for the whole session. Um, try to have fun. We try to motivate them with things that they enjoy. Um, you know, we have a patient that we play music for sometimes, or if I, you know, I'm using videos maybe for a treatment, I try to pick ones that might interest them and not just, you know, the same ones I use for all of my patients. Um, Sometimes there's more family engagement with this population. So, you know, they might need someone to help them with their home exercise program, or they might need someone to come to their session with them. So I get a lot more traffic, I would say, in and out of our um, area of the clinic, just because they usually, you know, sometimes have more of an entourage, but a little bit more of a group effort, I would say. 
not to toot my own horn, but I've started singing to some of the patients. And let me tell you, I could be compared to the songbird of our generation. So <laughs> they never came anyway. back. That was their last visit when he sang. <laughs> so anyways, my next question is kind of another big topic that we deal with a lot in clinic. And uh, it's the UPMC like outcome measures and the frequency with which they're administered to our patients. I think what UPMC is doing with them is important for the profession. I think this profession needs more data on the amazing things that we could do and the times that we can get patients better in and stuff like that. But can you talk a little bit about kind of what that looks like at UPMC and what they're using it for? So we have um, outcome questionnaires that the patients have to answer and they do them on an iPad. Ideally in our waiting room, sometimes we have to help them through that. But um, so they're answering those questions specific to what they're coming for. So whether that be dizziness or balance um, or some type of orthopedic issue, um, the questions are specific to their diagnosis and their reason for therapy. Um, and then I primarily use the neuro core outcome measures. Um, so those are kind of the published outcome measures that are uh, have the best um, evidence for all neuro patients across kind of all the practice settings. Um, which is nice because then we don't have to know a hundred different outcomes for, you know, um, stroke versus spinal cord injury versus brain injury. We kind of use that collective set of outcomes that has the best evidence. Um, and then we have a team of therapists that has implemented that kind of across UPMC with people from each practice setting. So we've worked on ways to make sure that we're doing them consistently with the equipment that we have. We've got to I mean, we've gone as far as to measure our chairs and our stairs and our hallways and things like that to make sure that if a patient, um, it's a little trickier and eerie, but ideally if a patient goes from an acute care UPMC hospital to an inpatient rehab to an outpatient facility, all of the therapists should be administering the outcome measures with the same protocol. Um, and then our uh, documentation systems um, you know, should be reflecting the same method of documentation. So we should be writing gate speed the same way, and we should be, you know, all on the same page for how we're scoring maybe the Berg balance test or the six minute walk test. So we have taken the uh, NeuroPT outcome measure protocols and we've adapted them to fit our needs and our clinicians. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And so to kind of switch gears a little bit, um, you know, we're all third year students in this podcast, and I know that we're going to be handing it off to a great group of students who are younger than us, but this is good for, for them and for all of our listeners to hear. Um, you know, when you, when you start to get in your third year, you start to think about the job market, start to interview and, um, you know, look for opportunities, whether you're in your hometown or you want to travel. Um, and so, Amanda has been a huge help to me and, and Ben, I'm sure, kind of helping us get coached up for this interview process. And one of the things that she taught me that I really held on to is that an interview is, much, is as much for you um, to learn about that company as it is for them to learn about you as an employee. And so Amanda, one of the things that you taught me was uh, kind of how to ask good questions to people that you're interviewing with. And so for our, for our listeners, maybe third year students who are looking, um, to get a job, we want to make sure they screen out, you know, the right place to go for. Um, what are some good questions that you would ask someone who is interviewing you? So I think it's always important to, you know, they'll always ask you if you have questions. And I think it's always important to have some questions ready to ask. 
um, and ask things that are important to you. Um, you know, make sure that they have continuing education and an opportunity for mentorship, um, a potential to grow in whatever practice setting or whatever specialty that you're interested in. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to know, you know, as a company or as a practice, do they retain their employees? Do they have people that have worked there for 10 years or do they get new people every six months? Um, one time when I interviewed for an inpatient rehab position, I asked them how many of their patients go home because I wanted to know how many of their patients you know, were successful in rehab and what kind of people they were getting. So were they you know, going home? Were they getting back to the community or were they going to you know, a nursing home? So I think that People interviewing you will always be impressed by asking questions. Um, I don't think you ever want to get to the end of an interview and not have any questions at all. So think about your personal goals and you know, make sure that they align with whomever you're interviewing for. Absolutely. And not only that, but Amanda was talking about look for opportunities for growth. And these are all things I've learned from her. Look for opportunities for growth, uh, look for continuing education, reimbursement, all those things, because I think, and I'm guilty of it as well. I think too many new grads get caught up with just the number of the salary and they might not pay mm -hmm. attention as much to um, the other opportunities that the company does or does not present. Um, and so that's something that I've been trying to really be mindful of as I go through different interviews as well. I mean, Liz famously basically got a job at CSM. She was like, we, we went up to a big recruiting event. And next thing you know, she's like, I'm moving to North Carolina. So you never know when this stuff will pop up. Let's give it up for Liz one time. How about a round of applause? Okay, I okay. don't have the job yet. <laughs> Liz, you're I'm telling people I got a job. Liz is the glue of this podcast. We just have to get that out there now. Liz, you're the best, okay? Thank take you. the fame, take the fame. She's blushing. Guys, if you can see the video, her <laughs> cheeks are rosy red right now. <laughs> oh my. So Amanda, how is it like working with these two? <laughs> you know, I've really been looking forward to meeting you because I know that you spend a lot of time with them. <laughs> but they've been great. They are, uh, feel like they were both, um, you know, Ben was and David is just Kind of become part of our office and part of our day and they get along really well with everyone and they are super hard workers and super motivated and you know one of the things I love about having students is that I always learn stuff too so you know I love getting asked questions and you know Dave and I have gone so far as to pull out notes to treat patients with BPPV <laughs> we've had to do some research and we've had some tough cases and you know, it's been really great to bounce ideas off of them. So they have been great. So what separates a good student from a great student in the clinical setting? I think one of my favorite things about, you know, having a really great student is I love it when students do things before you ask them to do it. So I think as a, as a clinical instructor, there's nothing worse than just having to nag somebody every day to do the same thing. Um, you know, so that initiation piece, I think, is one thing that sets people apart. Um, doing things that you're not asked to do, taking ownership for the patients and just, you know, even if it's not your favorite patient or your favorite clinical setting, just getting invested in their care and doing the best that you can. Um, you know, being prepared every day 
doing things ahead of time, making sure that you have a you know plan for the day and a plan for each patient, and just you know not needing to be asked to do those things. Um, and I think something that Ben and Dave both have um, that's hard to come by sometimes in students is just that ability to talk to the patients. There are certain qualities in a student that you know we are not as able to teach people. Um, and I think as PTs, we just inherently need to have um, just that ability to have a conversation about anything to, you know, pass the time, make light of a situation, you know, our patients go through tough things. So just to be able to do a really good job and have some fun too. Absolutely. And that's my favorite part about being a PT is getting the, to spend the time that we do with patients. Um, so how, so how, like, long were you into your practice before you took your first student? Um, probably about a year and a half. It was not very long. Um, and actually, when I started working in rehab, I acquired a student who would have been the therapist student whose position I took. And, and I kind of tried to turn her down. I went to my supervisor and I said, you know, like, I just got here and I'm not really comfortable with this. Um, but she uh, was just a phenomenal student. And I think we learned a lot from each other and kind of held on for the ride, but I didn't have a lot of experience. Um, I think I have, I think I do a better job than I used to. <laughs> um, but I think for, for mutually for students and for clinicians, I think it's best to have a couple of years under your belt before you take a student. For sure, for sure. So we are sort of getting to, the end of the podcast, we have a couple more questions left, but kind of the big theme of this podcast is talking to PTs like yourself about their defining moments. What gets them up in the morning? What gets them excited for the career? What keeps them in the career for a long period of time? I'm sure you've had a ton. I've had some defining moments of my own career, just working with you and with the patients that we get to work with. But what has been your defining moment as a PT, Amanda? So I've had a lot of those moments, and I think that. Um, you know, I love all of the big moments for people. The first time they walk, the first time they do the stairs, the first time, you know, they do those certain things um, that they really want to get back to. But uh, one of my favorite moments um, when I worked in inpatient rehab, I had a really young girl who had had a stroke and she was getting married and she couldn't walk. And she couldn't talk. And so we had to, we would work in therapy on doing those things. Um, so one of the things we practiced was carrying flowers and walking. And I would walk down the hall kind of with her, my arm linked through hers. And, you know, I'd be the groom, she'd be the bride, and we would practice. And one day we were doing that and we were working on her stepping and moving her leg. And her fiance came down the hall and I kind of passed her off to him. And then they kind of walked down the hall. And that was the moment as a PT that I, you know, will definitely never forget. It was a special one. I've had a few of those, but that's a favorite. I love it. I love it. So we could end it here, but I wanted to do a little bit of like a rapid fire to Amanda of some questions that we've kind of drafted up on our list. So let me pull it up here. Okay. So you have to go without one of these for the rest of your time that you're a physical therapist, because you use both of these a lot. Would you rather go without a gait belt slash ankle weight slash weight vest, or would you rather go without your vestibular goggles? Uh, the weights for sure. Okay, absolutely. All right, that makes <laughs> sense. You, I mean, you need the vestibular goggles, it makes sense. 
Where is my next one? Ooh. Oh, okay. This is for Liz and Ben, probably more so Ben, because I think Liz already knows the answer to this question. Ben, if you had to compare me to any breed of dog, what breed of dog would that be? I'm supposed to answer? Yeah, you're a supposed poodle. to answer this one. A poodle, because you require the utmost attention. So much attention at all times. High maintenance. <laughs> He's not wrong, guys. I, am <laughs> I was going to say golden retriever, but honestly, that's a good answer, Ben. The, the correct answer is golden retriever. And I think everyone in our clinic agrees with that because I get so excited when certain patients come in, really when all the patients come in. Uh, I had one more good one. Oh, how many weeks into rotation did it take for people in the clinic to stop calling me Ben? <laughs> um, at least a few. And I think I was included in that. <laughs> I've, I've developed a bit of a Ben complex over uh, <laughs> over this rotation. Oh, man. I think that was everything I had. Do I have any other funny questions? Oh, there was one about the infamous Ryan Brown on here. But you know what, Ryan, if you're listening, man, you didn't give me your hair care routine. So I can't know how to get that luscious mane of yours. So, but... Amanda, I wanted to thank you so much for your time. We've been looking forward to having you on the podcast, and this was very insightful. You're welcome. Pop it up one time for Amanda. <laughs> yep.